spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. you get nervous about one of your favorite shows, it's time to take action. It's episode 265 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I'm talking about Deadly Class here from Sci-Fi because, you know, the network upfronts were this week. Didn't really hear anything from Sci-Fi about Deadly Class Season 2, so hashtag Renew Deadly Class is on the Down and Nerdy Podcast this week. Going to be talking to the cast and one of the producers of Deadly Class. We're talking about Liam James, Luke Tenney, Taylor Hickson, Benjamin Wadsworth, Maria herself is going to be on the show this week. And yeah, we're going to talk about maybe Season 2 of Deadly Class, talk about some stuff that happened in Season 1 as well. We'll kind of recap the season, so if you're a Deadly Class fan, you're not going to want to miss that. Also, Arrowverse fans, I've got my spoiler-filled review of the Arrow Season 7 finale, the Flash Season 5 finale that's going to be coming. A ton of nerd news that you're going to be interested in as well, but we're starting with comics. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Aubrey Sitterson, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hit the power button on the laptop or the tablet. Maybe even drag out the long box, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading and a couple of books that you're actually not going to be able to get your hands on yet. But we're going to preview them for you here a little bit this week. First one's going to be Stranger, Th- Stranger Things 6, number 1. That's from Dark Horse. going to be coming out on May the 29th. Jody Hauser doing the writing. Edgar Salazar on the pencils. Keith Champagne on the inks. Marissa Luis on the colors. And Nate Picos of Blambot on the letters. Alexi Breeklot on the cover art as well, which is amazing. Now, this is a prequel series set in the 70s that follows a teenager named Francine with special abilities. It also kind of deals with the secrets inside of Hawkins' lab, but I'll get to that in a second. Now, we do get to see what Francine's ability is and how long she's had it. We also get to see how that's exploited throughout her life, and that really does affect her over the course of the years. Now, the story is also a bit of a commentary on family dynamics during the 70s, which is a really, you could almost let that go unnoticed because there's so many other cool things happening in this book, but it's very much an undercurrent, and I'm sure it's going to play a role in future issues as well, but it really made you feel bad for her when you're reading the story, and that was kind of a big part of it for me anyway. Now, something really interesting happens when she bumps into somebody at Hawkins that could add a lot more intrigue to the story and even the backstory. Too as well. Now we get to see something that happens to her a little bit after that in a moment of frustration, and boy, could that tease something that may or may not be familiar. That's as much as I'll tell you on that. Now, what we also learn is just how vast this Hawkins program really was in the 70s. It's really quick and it's hidden in the art, but when you see it, I, I saw it and I'm like, wow, I had no idea that it was that much. So just be on the lookout for that. Now, Speaking of the art, one thing that I love is the color change between the time at Hawkins and during the flashbacks. It really helped set the tone off for the two the two time periods, even though it was in the same decade. The art itself, too, really brings out the realism in those flashbacks and really puts you in the era, which when you're talking about a Stranger Things story is something that you really have to get right, and I think they do, especially since we're talking about 70s here and not 80s, which is where the original Stranger Things from Netflix 
is set in. Now, the story is full of intrigue, really is a great addition to the existing mythos. And as far as, I mean, you're talking about maybe one or two characters. I would say one that you've really seen and been familiar with from this story already. And it doesn't matter because you're locked in, or at least I was, to Francine and even a couple of other of the characters in here as well. So this is a poll for me. And I'm, I kind of thought that it would be. I kind of thought that I'd love this. Was not let down at all. So that, come, of course, coming out on May the 29th. Going to have to fast forward a little bit longer for this Valiant Comics offering. Psylords number one coming out June the 19th. Fred Van Lint on the on the writing there. Renato Judas on the art. Jave Sharp on the letters. And Rod Rice on the cover. Now, we get to meet four unique characters here. Tank, Hazard, Artisan, and Beacon. Now, they all seem to have some be in some sort of prison. And they're all hearing a voice inside their head. Now, there's a real shroud of mystery that surrounds this entire book while you're reading it. And it really, really keeps you off balance. Now, we do get to discover something about all of these characters that they have. And this is in the preview on Valiant's website, so this is not a spoiler. We get to find out that they all have certain special abilities. Now, it also turns out they have a bit of a common goal as well, but there's kind of very little information to go on, even when you find out what that initial goal actually is. Now, this first issue basically ends with the start of a quest, and that is to, this might be a little bit of a spoiler, so I'll point this out, that is to find the Psy Lords. So we're not actually dealing with the Psy Lords yet, we're dealing with four captors on a ship that are being held captive by something otherworldly, I'll just say it that way, and they have to figure out a way around that and find the Psy Lords. So we're not even at the titular point of this book yet, really, so it's a little bit of a preview. Now, There's a lot of great sci-fi style action in this, and it certainly has the right feel. And sometimes, though, sci-fi can be very cryptic, right? And leave you with a lot of questions you hope will be answered, in this case, coming up in future issues. So it's really hard to judge the story for that reason, especially since this helps introduce us to the characters and their abilities. And we don't even really know a whole lot about their abilities yet, or even how they got them. We do know there is a hint to that in the story that I won't give away. But there's, it is absolutely not made clear that that is the reason for these abilities. Now, the art's a real tone setter for me in this. It really gives everything kind of a dark feel. And it, sometimes it has a haze over it, too. I don't know if that's going to make sense or not. Maybe it will when you read it. That, that, that off-balance thing that I mentioned, it helps keep you off-balance. And I, I like that it was a little bit wonky like that. This actually, when I was reading this, it almost feels like the first act of a video game that could really lead to something very cool and interesting. I thought that the team dynamic, even though they're not really a team yet, they just sort of meet up with each other, but it gives you that team vibe. I thought it was really interesting. There's an empowering moment for them somewhere in this book that I think you really dig. It's really hard to compare this to anything too, which I think is actually a good thing because sci-fi tends to be an homage to something. And I really don't feel like this is, it feels like it's kind of set in its own space. And that's something that I think is kind of lacking in sci-fi and that you need something that's going to be able to exist on its own, and I really think this can. I'm going to give this one a pickup, though. I didn't get that really jump-out-there feeling about it when I read this first issue, and I think it's there's a lot of setup here, and I think that's the reason why. So I will review this book again when issue two comes out, see if I change my tune and add this to a poll. I've got a good feeling about it, though. I think this will be in my poll box eventually. So that's Valiant Comics, Psylords number one, which is going to be coming out 
on June the 19th. And of course, Dark Horses, Stranger Things 6, number one, going to be coming out on May the 29th. You're going to want to pick up both of those. It's going to do for what we're reading up next. Time to talk TV and the spoiler-filled review of the Arrow Season 7 finales next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yeah, brother. This is Josh Segura, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Who will save this city? That's right. It's time for my spoiler-filled review of the Arrow Season 7 finale. And I'm going to have plenty of spoilers from here on out, by the way. And I'm not going to exactly go through absolutely everything in the episode, but I will go through points that I liked, some things that I maybe didn't like, and a little bit on Elicity as well, because, I mean, Felicity's leaving the show, Emily Bett Records, so we got to talk about that a little bit, right? So you know where we're at. Team's trying to shut down this chemical agent attack that Emiko was going to unleash on the city. They're also at odds with the SCPD, Thanks to Emiko because they thought they took down a bunch of cops. So it's just, again, for Team Arrow, just a bunch of obstacles that are thrown in front of him. But Oliver's really taking a different approach now. He really wants to break his family's cycle of violence. And this is the, probably the most low-key Oliver in a situation like this that I've seen, I think we've seen in a long time. And I think that he he almost feels like that, that it's reaching a certain ending point. It's almost like we're getting... Oliver consciously aware that the show is ending, but I'm not talking fourth wall here stuff stuff here, so I'll get to that here in a second. But, of course, you know, they find out a way to stop the drones and halt the virus, and then we also have the trail that ultimately leads to where the detonator is, and that's where they're going to take it down. It's at Palmer Tech, by the way. Of course it's at Palmer Tech. And, you know, Emiko's waiting for that big showdown with Oliver, right? And, yeah, they shut down the bombs, so there's going to be no kaboom and... That, of course, makes the United Circle upset because they were promised destruction and they were already upset with Emiko's, you know, battle against her brother. Anyway, so they basically not only interrupt the two of them from fighting, but they actually start, you know, going after Emiko now. So for one, what turned out to be final time, Emiko and her brother are fighting side by side. And, you know, she, you know, they do a really good job at fighting them off. They're not much of a match. For them, well, except for one of them, anyway, who gets a really good shot in on Emiko. And, you know, she's basically dying at this point. She apologizes to Oliver for everything. You know, so she really wants to be, a, she really wanted to be a queen. But she basically says, you need to hide Felicity and that baby. Your family's going to die. I made sure of it. So even in her final moments, she's like, yeah, so I was definitely going to kill your family. And I know that it's going to happen no matter how you feel about me now. So you're going to want to make sure that you hide them. That was that was a little difficult. And Oliver just seems to have some sort of acceptance. But, I mean, it's all happened to Oliver, hasn't it? And he talked about all the people he lost when he was talking to Emiko and saying, you know, I blamed you for all that because you let our father die. And this whole thing could be your fault. But then he just sort of lets that go. And Oliver just has to go on now because Emiko's gone. And after the big win, you know, the team sort of says their goodbyes. You know, they're not quite done with the ninth circle, but at the same time, it feels like the main threat, the major threat is over. And they even say, hey, the city's safe for the first time in a long time. Debatable, since they don't actually shut down the ninth circle here. But at the same time, you know, you, you kind of feel that way at certain points. So this is when they have that moment where they shut down the bunker and Oliver and Felicity are going to go into hiding. And, you know, Diggle's still the only one that knows. And he's kind of the one 
responsible for, you know, keeping the bunker in tip-top shape. I guess he just goes in there and flushes the toilets every now and then, you know, make sure the pipes don't burst or anything like that. You know, reboot the computers every now and then to make sure, you know, there's nothing going on there. So it just, this was the finality of Team Arrow in in Star City. And it just kind of went away quicker than you would have thought, right? It did, it almost feels like this wasn't the way it was supposed to end. You knew that, of course, Roy was going to go back to deal with his issues and to find Thea. And you knew that eventually Dinah's going to, you know, focus more on her role in the police department. We know what ends up happening with Renee, thanks to the future forwards, which I'll get to here in a second. And Diggle, Diggle's a little bit more of a mystery than than the rest of them are. But I'm sure that we'll get to that at some point next season. But it just didn't feel like this was supposed to be how it ended. This was supposed to be a goodbye. Although you could say that Oliver's been through enough. And he earned this. And then we get to see that. We get to see Oliver with Mia and with Felicity. And you know he was there for the birth. And we get to see him taking in the first days and weeks and, I guess, months of her life. They're not really clear on how much time has passed. And then, yeah, the monitor shows up. It's time to pay up on that debt, son. You know, when you saved Kara and you saved Barry, yeah, it's time to pay up. And you think automatically it's going to be with his life, right? And it's not. I mean, it is, but it isn't. He's like, look, you're coming with me now so we can stop this crisis and save countless lives, but you're going to die. So basically, Felicity knows when Oliver leaves, he's dying one way or another. She knows this for a fact. There's, he basically said, there's no incarnation in which you don't die in this, but you can save your family and countless others. And you know if there's a chance for Oliver to save his family, he's going to take it. And we get that emotional moment that you kind of expected between Oliver and Felicity, where Oliver basically says how Felicity saved him, saved his life. And Felicity also, in a very emotional moment, talking about how much that she loves Oliver and that it's always going to be Oliver. And, you know, it really was a special relationship. Say what you want about the pair of them. Say what you want about Felicity. They loved each other to the core. And they've made through some really, really tough times. And there were times where, yeah, I was mad at Felicity. And there were times where I was mad at Oliver. But sometimes that's the beauty of great relationships, isn't it? The fact that you can go through... All of these, all of this turmoil. And Felicity even said, she's like, it's always going to be something, isn't it? We're never really going to get to have normal lives and never going to get to be safe. No, you're not. And that realization actually plays into the future forwards, I think. When we see her as an older Felicity, she's got that battle-hardened, you know, mentality because this, and this is when it happened for her, where she just had to flip into a different mindset. And she did. And if and you you might not have liked current Felicity, but you I'm I'm sure you really liked future forward Felicity. She was more take charge. She was a little bit more confident. She of course still wanted to protect her family because who wouldn't want to protect their family? But she had much more of a I I guess you want to call it backbone. She always had a little bit of one, or she had her moments anyway. But she definitely has one, and she has that hero mentality. In these future forwards. So we do get to see Oliver go off with the monitor. You know Crisis on Infinite Earths is coming. But in the future forwards, and I'm going to just go through this really quickly. Basically their idea is let's put a virus in Archer to shut down these soldiers. 
and then that way we can kind of, you know, take everything back. You, we can take the city back from Galaxy 1. And Mia was erased from Archer by Felicity years ago. So her DNA is not even in there. So she can get by. Or at least they thought that she could because, you know, the CEO guy recognizes William. And now Mia's got to go up there and kind of improvise. But, you know, if she goes up to the wall and blows things up, she's probably not going to make it back alive. Well, spoiler alert. She does make it back alive because she's Oliver Queen's daughter, and that's just how she rolls. If she is not her father's daughter, I don't know who is. She is so Oliver, with even a little bit of a more of a cocky edge to her. She has got such an edge. I really hope this isn't the last we see of Mia. We do get to see the adults, meaning Renee. You've got Felicity. You've got Dinah and Roy. They pass the torch to the kids. Right? So you've got Zoe, Mia, William, and you've also got Connor. Yeah, they're going to be the new Team Arrow going forward in the future. So I think that that's cool, and I hope we don't get, we've not seen the last of that. I'm not saying they're going to get their own series, but I think that, that it'll be an interesting team dynamic to explore at some point. And then we get that, we get that scene where Felicity meets with the kids at Oliver's grave, and of course, you know, the Queen family grave. And basically says that, you know, she's out. She's she's gone. She's She's got to go on to the next chapter of her life. And then we see the monitor take her into, I guess, the multiverse, if you want to call it that way. And it's her getting to go finally be with Oliver. So does he die or doesn't he? It looks like maybe he doesn't. So that adds more intrigue to Crisis on Infinite Earths, though, doesn't it? Because now we see that... Maybe he doesn't die. So it's not like we know this for sure going in. So what exactly happens to Oliver? Does he die? Does he end up in another dimension? Does he end up in this weird limbo of the multiverse where the monitor lives? I don't know. So we'll have to figure that out next year when we get to Crisis on Infinite Earths and this final shortened season of Arrow. But, I mean, this did have that series finale kind of feel, didn't it? Because I'm not sure they knew they were going to get any more episodes. Maybe they felt like this could be it. This is where the chapter gets closed. And a lot of stuff was closed out, right? There was a lot of stuff that seemed like it was finalized. There's still plenty of stuff out there, and there's still some loose ends that need to be tied up in this eighth season, and I'm sure they'll do that. But at the same time, it feels like if this were to be it, it would have been a satisfying conclusion. Maybe not the conclusion that we wanted, especially with Emiko. I really wish they would have let that go a little bit longer. Not necessarily her hating her brother, but that redemption moment that we see in the comics, right? Because this whole ninth circle thing plays out in the comics as well. A little bit differently than it does on the show, of course, but it plays out differently, and we get to see Emiko and Oliver Queen be a team and you know they actually do live together at one point if I remember correctly so we get to see that so I, I really wish we could have seen that I, I'm a big fan of the of Emiko's character and I really wish we could have seen more there it looks like we're not going to get a chance to do that so I'm a little bit bummed about that but all in all I actually thought it was a good season of Arrow I liked how they made the transitions from him being in prison to where the show ended up and having to stop the ninth circle it's almost like they took a couple of different arcs and made them their own, and that's not something that this show really does very often. So I actually liked that strategy a little bit. It worked out well for me. I I, I was I, I enjoyed last season of Arrow, and I think this was one of the stronger seasons as well. So I really can't wait to see what they do to wrap things up 
in the final season. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Arrow Season 7 finale. Up next, we're going to talk about the Flash finale on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Lesher from The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And in a flash, it was over. That's right. Time for my spoiler-filled review of the Season 5 Flash finale at Legacy. Yep, a lot of spoilers from here on out. And again, I'm not going to go point by point through everything that happened in the episode. I will go through certain points. I won't really even give my full review of the entire season. I kind of want to make this stick to the finale. So here's what we've got at play. Here's the things that they needed to kind of unpack. First of all, you got to deal with Cicada 2 and her plan to basically kill every metahuman and how they're going to finally stop that. We also have to deal with how are they going to deal with the Thawne situation because we find out that the reason Ralph wanted to jump in front of that mirror gun was because the only thing keeping Eobard Thawne in prison is Cicada's dagger. We got to see that at the end of the penultimate episode. So Ralph actually does that. He jumps in front of the mirror gun, saves the day, dagger not destroyed, of course, and they're trying to figure out why he did that. So he turns into this weird Minecraft-looking character after he gets shot by the mirror gun. I thought he was dead. I'm going to be honest, right here, right now, I thought Ralph died. And that one hit me hard, like really hard. I I mean, we almost lost Ralph Dibney once already. I could not deal with possibly losing Ralph Dibney again. I could tell you that right now. He's going to be one of my favorite characters on the show. And this really, I mean, maybe the CW doesn't need Batman. Maybe they've already got... The world's greatest detective and Ralph Dibney. You got to admit, Ralph has come such a long way. And even for most of this season, they didn't take him seriously with his theories. But And, and sometimes they were weird theories. But, you know, the just like any good detective, he kept digging and digging and digging. And he's the one that figured out this whole Thawne mess. Sherlock couldn't do it. Team Flash couldn't do it. Any other Team Flash members? No, no, no. It was Ralph Dibney that solved the case. And hopefully we're going to see a lot more of that in the future in The Flash. If we see, You see there at the end, of course, he's not dead. He lives. And we see there at the end where he's going through case files, a certain case file that might tease a certain special someone for next season. Maybe a little bit of a love interest for Ralph. Finally, you know, one that's actually going to stick for more than an episode. Yeah, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that at some point, I'm sure. But I don't want to jump too far ahead. I'm just saying Ralph had a big episode once again, if anybody had more the most growth this season, it was Ralph Dibney. No question about that for me. But, you know, there is the question of what's going on with Nora. So now Nora's one of the ones especially that's wondering, okay, why did Ralph stop the whole dagger thing? And now what do we do to stop Cicada? And this is where Nora comes in. You, this was going to be, I thought, Nora's redemption episode, right? Now, I know that there's been a lot of hate when it comes to Nora's character, in this in this season. And I've actually liked Nora for the most part this season. I thought she's been fun. She's been quirky. She's kind of added a little bit of a lighthearted element to the season. You know, she got kind of evil there for one episode. And, you know, she's been a little bit of a screw-up at times, too. And she kind of goes and runs out there on her own. No pun intended. Actually, you know what? Always pun intended. I mean, you've listened to the show before. You, you know, puns are intended. But my point is, is that... If you have kids or you've been around kids, 
you know they're going to do stupid stuff sometimes. Sometimes because their parents told them not to and they're going to do it anyway. Sometimes because they think they know better. Sometimes because they just want to prove that they can do stuff too. And sometimes it works out. And sometimes it's just stupid. And it doesn't work out at all. And it makes things ten times worse. And that's something that Nora just happened to do quite a few times this season. And maybe part of that is the frustration. Or people that don't really get that that's something that just sort of happens sometimes. So it feels like this was her moment that she could be redeemed in this episode. So she kind of comes up with a plan on how to trap Cicada and try and get rid of Thawne at the same time. Now, that doesn't really work out. Well, it half works out because actually Nora's the one that talks Grace down in the first place. Young Gracie, anyway, did her to take the cure that kind of erases older Grace and Cicada altogether. Now, the only kicker to that was is that cicada kind of gets the drop on them the dagger's making it so the cure doesn't work so they now have to destroy the dagger in order to save nora basically because cicada has nora dead to rights so barry has to go ahead and destroy the dagger which you knew it was going to happen right at that moment didn't you and i'm not i'm not even saying barry didn't do the right thing barry absolutely did the right thing but You also know that Thawne, and I believe it was my buddy Mike from Den of Geek that wrote this, that Reverse Flash is probably the best Arrowverse villain ever, bar none to this point. And I I have a hard time disagreeing with that. I really do. And and for so, so many reasons that I'm sure that I'll get into at some point when I make one of those lists or something on the website. But I, I have a hard time disagreeing with that because the second that dagger gets destroyed. I know that Thawne is already three steps ahead of absolutely everybody else because that's what Eobard Thawne does. He knew that he had Nora dead to rights whenever he wanted after that connection with the negative speed force because I'll give Team Flash credit once they finally do get out there and they travel to the future to try and stop Thawne. They give him, I mean, quite a beating. Actually, once the whole team gets out there, they've got a great plan. They're executing it to a T, and then all of a sudden, good old Eobard Thawne pulls a trick out of his sleeve, and basically he's using Nora's connection to the negative speed force to basically disintegrate her from the inside out. A new timeline is being created because of this, and now Nora, not a part of that timeline. Eobard Thawne doesn't even need to snap his fingers to dust people. How do you like that, Thanos? That is the power of Eobard Thawne. His brain is just that incredible. So now, basically, Eobard is decimating the entire Allen family. West Allen, Allen, whatever you want to call them, he's decimating that entire family, if you want to think about it. He's had such a major impact on so much pain in Barry's life. And here's the other thing. If you're Iris... Not just Barry, but Iris. How do you recover from this? Because, I mean, if you want to think about it, she she got played too. Thawne looks her right in the eye, and she trusts Nora. And you're going to trust your daughter, I understand that. But she looked Thawne in the eye herself, and she got played. And look what happened. I'm not saying it's all her fault. Don't get me wrong. Nora owns this mistake on her own, and that's why she said... Don't try to save me. You're not going to be able to do it. This is my mistake to own. This is my legacy. This is what I was supposed to 
be brought here to do. And she saved a lot of people with what she did with Cicada and what she tried to do with Reverse Flash. She saved a ton of people. So that is her legacy. And I think that that's kind of one of of the things that's getting lost in this is that, you know, despite all her mistakes, she still, at the end of the day, made it so she was absolutely 100% a hero and made her parents proud. Too, by the way, that was a great moment at the end of the episode when they're watching that video after she dies and saying that this is how she wanted to go out. This is who she wanted to be. She wanted to be a hero and help people and try to save the Flash. Maybe. We'll get to that in a second. But So Nora does get her moment, I think. But the guy who always seems to get his moment no matter what is Eobard freaking Thawn every time. So now he's out there. He's on the loose. He, they don't know where he is, and he's like, hey, see you in the next crisis. Oh, Iris, always a pleasure. If I'm Iris, I'm wearing a helmet the rest of the run of this show, and you know why if you're a fan of the comics. That's all I'm saying. I, I would not, I would be, I would have my head on a swivel this entire time, but, but, I'm, and, but one thing I do love here, and I know that there's been some criticism of this finale, I love that this opens the door for Eobard Thawne to come back as the villain of this show. I, I They stepped away from it for a while. I know that they've kind of used him in spurts here and there, but they stepped away from it for a while. Now they're getting back to it, I feel like, just at the right time, especially with Crisis on Infinite Earths looming here. This is just the right time to once again have to deal with Eobard Thawne. And you're really, what they're doing is they're setting themselves up for an end here, aren't they? That's exactly what it feels like, and maybe we'll get a spinoff or two from this, maybe. And Ralph Dibney, don't, hey, I, I, call me crazy. This could carry its own show. We could see an elongated man series. Don't laugh at me, don't at me. I'm telling you right now, Ralph Dibney's got that kind of personality where he could carry a show, maybe not, a, maybe not completely on his own. You need a supporting cast as well. Tell me that wouldn't be an entertaining show. I'm just saying. I think it would be a lot of fun. I don't want to see The Flash go anywhere anytime soon. But if it does, I feel like they've got some characters that we could do something with. So, Eobarthon's back in a big way. Nora had her big hero moment. Barry and Iris are once again having to deal with the fallout of their decisions, really. I mean, and and how they, they operate things. And this time, it's their daughter, but... You know, they're proud. Barry said, you know, I'm not really as sad as I am proud. So the fact that they got to see their daughter like that, the fact that Barry got to see his daughter at all, I mean, it was one of the great parts of this season of The Flash. Now we have Joe West as the captain now of the Stars, excuse me, the Central City PD, because Singh steps down, and Singh, of course, knew Barry was the Flash. It seems like everybody knows that Barry's the Flash. It's only a matter of time, I think, before Barry just completely outs himself as the Flash because everybody seems to know. Already, so what difference does it make? Killer Frost is getting a new suit. Can't wait for that. Kind of predictable that Cisco took the cure. Not just because Carlos Valdez is leaving the show, but because it just felt like they've been setting that up for a while now. And and good for him, man, to decide he would rather live his life than be vibe. That's a that's a hard decision to make. And even Caitlin says, you know, once we do this, there's no going back. And he's like, I know, this is what I want. So the way I see it, good for him. That's that's an uh, that's an unsung moment in this finale too. To have the strength to make that kind of a decision, 
for Cisco's character. He's always been more than just vibe, though. And th- and that's the thing that I'm screaming from my couch. I'm going, but you're not just vibe, Cisco. You might feel like that's what defines you, but it's not. You're so much more than that with your mind and the way you keep the team together. And one of the things I'm so glad they buffed out before the end of this finale and before the end of the season was that Caitlin and Cisco are good now. They're good again. They were at odds for so long, and they just, their relationship just wasn't the same. And before this season ended, we got to get the Caitlin and Cisco together that we knew and loved. And that's a friendship that I, I hope we see again at some point. I know that Carlos Valdez is not going to be a series regular on the show anymore. Hope he comes back at some point and we get another Caitlin and Cisco moment because I, I will definitely be waiting for that. So, all in all, I do think this is, this was a good season of The Flash. I'll be, you know, not perfect at times, but certainly had plenty of really good moments. Plus, I mean, Gorilla Grodd versus King Shark moment this season. I mean, come on. I mean, it, it's I'll never forget that. There, there were just so many, and that's just what The Flash does. The Flash has so many great moments that even when it has some slower moments, you kind of like, ah, I forget about that because you know it's going to rebound. And while the finale wasn't perfect either... What this did and what Arrow did was perfectly set up the biggest event, maybe in DC TV history, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Okay, so what the both of these did was set up Crisis on Infinite Earths perfectly. And if you're a DC fan at all, how can you not be absolutely 100% hyped for that? Because I know that I am for sure. And how they got us there, I think pretty darn brilliant too, quite frankly. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of The Flash Season 5 finale. Up next, yeah, I've still got some nerd news to talk about on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is writer Mark Miller, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's time to play Who's Under the Cowl. That's right, it's time for nerd news. And let me tell you, I love it when a report comes out, everybody runs with it, and then it's like, hold on a second. Might not necessarily be the case. And I'm talking about the Batman casting for the Batman. Matt Reeves' adaptation is going to be coming out, hopefully, in 2021, right? At least that's the latest report that we're getting. Speaking of reports, Variety came out right away. said Robert Pattinson, that's right, from Twilight and other things, don't get up in arms yet, is going to be the Batman. And then Deadline says, hold on a second, Nicholas Holt is still in the running. Yes, Robert Pattinson is in the front-running spot, but the ink isn't dry yet, it's not a done deal, and it could still be Nicholas Holt. Okay, so let's take a deep breath on this for a second and talk about it. First of all, they're both very good actors. I know. Robert Pattinson. That's the problem with playing a role like that. He was younger. You understand it, right? It's not... I mean, the movies made a ton of money, Twilight did... It was for a certain audience that might not be you. And, you know, you want to make fun of those movies and want to make all the vampire jokes. You know, now he's a bat for real, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Make all the jokes you like. But if you see some of the stuff he's done after that, this guy's a legit actor. Okay. Plus, he's got, I think, four movies coming out this year. Do yourself a favor. Go see one of them. Then make your judgment on who Robert Pattinson actually is. I think you know who Nicholas Holt is, right? You've seen enough of the X-Men movies. If you saw him in Tolkien, he was very good in that as well. He's been in other things as well. He is a good actor. If I've got to choose between one of these guys, it's tough. It really, really is. But I feel like brooding-wise, I mean, as, as far as the look, maybe Pattinson's got 
a little bit of an edge there. Just a little bit. But I mean, really, I'd kind of be fine either way. And now, of course, this is, you know, we're late into the night. On, we're early in the net morning, actually, on Friday here, and I'm finishing up recording the show. The decision might already be made by the time that you listen to this. So keep this in mind. Either guy would be a really good choice. I think they're both very good actors. But I think there's a little bit more of an edge to Pattinson that might give him a little bit of an extra push over Nicholas Holt. But, I mean, either way, I think we're good. And I'm excited because either way, I think we're getting a very different Batman movie. And we're going to have a very different Batman in this next movie. And I'm excited for that because I love Batman and I love trying something new. And I think that's exactly what Matt Reeves is going to do. It was TV Upfronts week, a whole bunch of trailers dropped, or at least a few that we're going to focus on anyway. And the first one, how can I not start with the Batwoman trailer from the CW Upfronts, right? Of course, now Batwoman going to be joining Supergirl on Sunday, so that'll be a nice girl power night for the CW, right? Love that. Now, the trailer itself, you get to see Kate Kane, you get to see her with her dad. You get to see her find the Batcave for the first time. You get to see her find the suit. And I love that she says we need to make it fit a woman. And then we see like the um, like the Mark I of the Batsuit for Batwoman, right? We get to see, you know, the hair's not out there quite yet. She's going out there for the suit in the first time. We get to see Red Alice for the first time too. Already love her, by the way. Already love that character. Already love that villain. I'm completely sold on Red Alice just by this trailer alone. And I don't jump out like that about characters, especially villains, very often. This this one I'm all for. She just looks she looks crazy. She looks amazing. She looks like she's lost her freaking mind, and I love it. And I love, by the way, Ruby Rose as Kate Kane. Man, she's sarcastic. She's just kick-ass, just like she was in the crossover. And she wants to be... Her own woman. She wants to be her own Batwoman because I love the line in the trailer where she goes, they think I'm him and I'll be damned if I'm going to let a man take a credit for my work or for a woman's work. And um, and that's when we're going to get the Batwoman suit at some point, right? That's when it's going to happen. So I don't know that we'll get the Batwoman suit right away. I actually think they might drag that out for a couple of episodes, make that interesting. You certainly have that ability to do so, so why not do that? I just, this has all the makings of a good show. Looks like we're going to get some of her military background, so we might get some flashbacks in there. It looks like we're going to. We could see, yes, there will be stuff going on between her and her dad. Dad looks like a good guy right now. He's running an organization called the Crows that are supposed to be the saviors of Gotham with no Batman. And Gotham thinks that Batman's abandoned them. He's not coming back. And we don't often get to see something where there's another protector of Gotham. And I think that how Gotham is going to be portrayed, Gotham City is going to be portrayed in Batwoman will be just as interesting as the characters themselves. So I think that this trailer knocked it out of the park. Exactly what you needed to build excitement for the Batwoman series going to be coming up this fall. But the CW did not stop there. We also got a big time trailer for Nancy Drew. And it does look like they're going for that for that darker tone, that more adult tone. I love that. Not even young adult. I mean, I'm talking adult. It looks like not only are we going to get a detective story here, we're getting a little bit of a ghost story as well. We've got Dead Lucy in play here. We've also got a bit of a murder that's going on in the town. And I love the fact that the cops don't like Nancy 
very much. And I love the line where she's like, oh, so you don't basically that you don't like me because I was doing your job for you. So I love that she's combative like that. I mean, I love that she's got kind of a, a, a job that she doesn't really like. And she's got a circle of I say friends and I say that loosely because I don't think that they are all her friends at all. Looks like she is going to get a little bit of a help. So she might actually have a little bit of a crime solving team I think that that's going to be very interesting, though, how that dynamic's going to flesh out between this group, because this is by no means a slam dunk for Nancy Drew as far as having friends. And, and, and I love the line, too, and that everyone's a suspect. And I know that can be kind of a trope a little bit. I get it. But I think in this, in this case where you're doing a whole small town thing, you almost have to have everybody be a suspect, right? Otherwise... It wouldn't really make much sense. So we get to see her sleuthing a little bit. Not a whole lot is revealed. And we know that the dead Lucy is going to factor in here somewhere. Maybe they think that dead Lucy isn't so dead after all. Maybe this isn't a ghost story after all. So while this didn't knock me out like the Batwoman trailer did, not an intrigue here. And I love what they're going to be doing. And I love that they're doing more adult. And it looks like they're going to kind of stick with the vibe that the recent Dynamite Comics series did. I know I've mentioned that on the show before, and I that confirms it for me on this. And while it's not the exact same story that's being done there, I think that this one's going to be pretty cool too. How about going over to ABC, a little Oni Press adaptation. How about Stumptown? That's right, the Greg Rucka series, if you remember that. If you haven't gotten that graphic novel yet, you've got a chance to read it before this series comes out because you've got Kobe Smulders, who's joining TV for the first time in a while, actually, playing Dex. And you've got Michael Ely playing Miles. Miles is kind of the guy on the police force that knows that Dex has got a certain special set of skills as a PI. And there's certain things that Dex can do that cops can't. So he's like, hey, you know, you might, can you help us out here a little bit? But Dex has got her issues, right? A little bit of a gambling problem, some other problems as well. And, you know, she doesn't really, she, she basically is trapped by a couple of criminals in the very beginning of the trailer, but I mean, she is just, there's just something about her that's so likable in such a, you know how you love John Constantine, even though he's not the most likable dude, you love him because of his personality, right? And you, you get that Dex has a ton of problems, but you love her anyway for it, right? And she also very sarcastic, very like, I don't care what you guys think of me sort of thing. She's not necessarily confident, but she just, you know, no filter is the best way that I can really describe Dex. So, and, and we get to see how the partnership between her and Miles is going to work or maybe not work, although it seems to work a little bit because they're making out at one point. And I'm not sure exactly how close this is going to stick to the adaptation from, from the comics. So we'll have to wait and see on that. But even if it doesn't, I mean, this is just, when you've got a character like Dex, that just could work perfectly in a TV series like this, especially if you can get Kobe Smulders to play her. Yeah, you do that. So I've got some pretty good hope for for Stumptown. I'm looking forward to this one to see exactly how they're going to play this out. That wasn't all the news that came from the upfronts. That was all the trailers, though, that really would be of interest to us anyway. And Deathstroke, though. No trailer for this, but we're going to get a Deathstroke animated series coming to CWC that was announced at the upfront, it's going to be called Deathstroke Knights and Dragons, and it's going to be done again by Blue Ribbon Content. Now, Deathstroke's, well, Slade's wife and son have paid for a big mistake that he made 
in the past. So now Slade's family is going to be hunted by Jackal and Hive. So we are going to get Hive in this, which I don't think we've seen enough Hive. Actually, I know that there's been a little bit. I, I think that Hive's been very underutilized by DC just in general. Now, here's the thing, though. This has a lot of potential. I get that. And we're about to get a lot of Deathstroke, too, and this just adds to it. We've got Deathstroke that's going to be coming to Titan Season 2. We've also got maybe Joe Manganiello eventually putting the outfit back on for another movie at some point. We don't know if or when that's going to happen. And now we've got this. Now, we, we, we don't really know a whole lot of information either. We don't know who's going to be the voice of the character. I know that Manu Bennett's going to be a lot of people's first choice, but I think you've got to go outside of that and do something a little bit different. We also know that things didn't exactly work out with that Constantine animated series on CWC did it. I mean, Constantine City of Demons, it re they released those first, what, few episodes... And then there was that cliffhanger. And they're like, oh, the rest is coming. And it just really never did. And it actually, it ultimately got released by Warner Brothers Home Entertainment as a Blu-ray release, which was great, by the way. I loved it. But, I mean, it was just, it was very choppy and disorganized how that whole thing was handled on CWC. Now, I know Vixen and the Ray worked out pretty well, but the release schedule needs to be done much better this time and, and CWC it's a great it's a great way to get content out there and I think that this again could be really really cool but you actually have to put it out if you're going to do this you actually have to make sure it comes out in a timely manner just release the whole thing or do one a week you just actually have to have some sort of a consistent release you can't release like the first half and then wait forever because people are going to lose interest even if it's great People are going to lose interest eventually because there's so much out there that we can see now. But I'm looking forward to this. I really, really hope it's as good as it can be. Some quick notes now. The Magic Order. Remember the comic book series from Netflix and Millar World? Well, yep, there's finally some news on it actually coming to the screen. We've got James Wan is going to be signed up to direct the first episode anyway. And Lindsay Beer is going to be the showrunner. Now, Lindsay's also working on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles reboot movies, the Mask movies she's also credited with as far as um, Hasbro Pictures is concerned, AllSpark Pictures. So I, I've been looking forward to this for a while. It seems like forever since we got the announcement and got the comics. I'm glad that there's a little bit of news and movement on that. No release date, but we'll keep you updated. The Tick is done after two seasons on Amazon. That was announced on Twitter by the creator of The Tick. And again, I I've no, I've mentioned this before. I loved season one of The Tick. Arthur and The Tick's relationship and Arthur eventually becoming a hero and finding out that he's not crazy and having that redeeming moment with his family and, and saving the day. At, at a certain point as well, I thought the first season was amazing. And then the second season just didn't have the same punch for me. I mean, you've got the Tick trying to discover who he is, and I get that. And Arthur's a hero now, so he's trying to be all he can be as a hero. And they're trying to join the, the Aegis, and it's not really working out. And then maybe it is working out. So it just didn't it didn't have that same humor to it. It didn't have that same you know great feeling that I had with season 1. That doesn't mean season 2 wasn't good. It was still pretty good. It's just it season 1 set a high bar that I don't think season 2 was really able to hit even though they expanded on some of the other characters stories. So and it was still funny at times, but I I guess I get why this was canceled. Of course, hashtag #save the tick 
is definitely a thing right now. I wouldn't be surprised if it does get saved. If it doesn't, I wouldn't be surprised either. But this is a show that could work and could find its footing again. It certainly, I don't think, needed to be canceled after two seasons. I understand maybe Amazon's making room for something else. I don't know that it deserved to be outright canceled. Maybe a shortened order season three to see if it catches some interest. Although, we don't really have hard numbers on season two either. So if the interest just wasn't there, because it didn't keep me as interested as I really wanted it to either. So if, I mean, I can't be alone in that if they decided not to bring it back for a second season. Marvel Comics is at it again. They are dropping the entire X-Men line. This was first reported by comicbook.com to relaunch the whole thing with Jonathan Hickman starting this summer. It's going to actually start in July and right around September is when every X-Men book that's currently out is going to be done and over with. And this statement really stuck out to me in the press release where Hickman says, This is a whole new era for the X-Men. This is what we're doing now. And that can be cool, and it can be scary, and it can be downright frightening at the same time. Now we've got House of X. It's going to be coming out. That's one of the books, and Powers of X. And that's how it's going to start with Hickman. And then eventually it'll branch out, and there will be different creative teams with different characters in different books. Now, if you see the art from these books... You do see characters that you recognize, like Magneto and a, a bunch of other X-Men characters as well. So it's not like there's going to be all new X-Men characters. But here's the thing. It just seems like Marvel's been trying to figure out what to do with the X-Men in the comics for the better part of a couple of years now. And then they, it seemed like there was going to be more of a focus on the Inhumans. They were the hot commodity, and then the X-Men get like killed off and then brought back and then ignored largely to an extent. X-Men Gold and X-Men Blue did well at first and then kind of you know, trailed off a little bit after that, or at least one of them did, and there was a little bit of controversy there. I just think that, I don't know, maybe it is time. Maybe it's time to do something like this, because if it's not working, you've just got to flush it and start over. But, I mean, Marvel Comics, is they relaunch. At least this isn't a whole line relaunch, I guess. But, you know, you kill something and you bring it back in short order, and I don't know that it's been working for them. So maybe doing it this way will be a little bit of a better strategy. I just want good X-Men comics because that's one of those books where you feel like you can always find something that you like in the X-Men books, and I just couldn't for the longest time. So I really, really hope that this does change that, and we'll definitely find out more at San Diego Comic-Con this year. It's going to do it for Nerd News up next. going to be talking about... Hey, let's hashtag renew deadly class or hashtag save deadly class, however you want to look at it. Talking to the cast and a producer next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Taylor Hickson from Deadly Class, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It was TV Upfronts Week, and one show we didn't really hear anything about from sci-fi was Deadly Class. So I'm saying hashtag renew deadly class, hashtag save deadly class, whatever we need to do to get the show back, but I was lucky enough to sit down, thanks to Sony and Sci-Fi, with the cast and one of the producers at WonderCon this year, starting out with Luke Tenney, so we asked Willie himself, do you think that Willie can stick to the past that he chose at the end of season one? From my perspective, nah. He made, he made friends that he really cares about, people who've already caused him to compromise on certain things. We saw that when Willie stood up for Marcus at the prom, uh, to Chico. Um, sacrificed a little, a little uh, red around his eye, but I, I don't think that he'll be able to sustain it. But that's me knowing Willie. 
But I honestly hope that he would. I hope that he we, we never see him again and he's kicking it with Gabrielle because, man, it would be nice for somebody to make it out. My question for Luke was, how do you think he reacts to the events of the finale? Well, on the flip side of that, how do you think he reacts to the events of the finale when and if he does fight? If he found out, he would probably be either extremely guilty or he'd be like, it's not my problem. One question that I loved somebody asked Luke Tenney was, what do you think connected Willie to Marcus? Man, I think it's that relationship is one of my favorites because Willie has a lot of things Marcus wants. Marcus has a lot of things Willie wants. They both respect each other for being what each other wants, yet they envy the same things that they want. So you have this relationship that is envious and protective and passionate and apathetic. So again, we talk about extremes and they're the perfect example of that. They're friends who don't like each other, and that's really cool. One of my questions to Luke was, you know, I was kind of joking a little bit, but I asked him, did you know that Willie's pickup line in that comic book shop would be so strong? Did you ever think that Superman's a punk would be such a great pickup line? Oh, man. You know what? Watching that back, it did seem kind of gangster, but at, like, at the moment, I was like, oh, he, he's, being, he's being a little a-hole right now. But that is how you probably pick up a girl in a comic store, yeah. <laughs> he's very, I guess, pretentious when it comes to, uh, to, to comics, and you mentioned Chris Claremont and John Byrne. From episode one, we see that he's somebody who's very passionate about the fact that he knows comics. So, yeah. My last question for Luke was, what was the fan reaction like after the episode where Willie left? What was the fan reaction like after that episode where Willie left and then after after the fact what happened on the show? How do you, how did fans react? They didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah they, they didn't like it at all. They wanted Willie to stick around. They wanted him to, to compromise and, and protect people. We've seen him do it a little bit. You know, with, with Chico, and that was a little tease, but we'll see. Next to sit down with us was Taylor Hickson, who we've had on the show before. Of course, she plays Petrus. We got to dive a little bit deeper into that character. First question for her was, Petrus seems to develop a good friendship with Marcus, and where do you think you see that going? I mean, Marcus sucks at girls. This is very obvious. He has no self-control. <laughs> Zero self-control. And uh, I think um, Petra, Petra likes to... to play with boys' hearts and uh, manipulate them a little bit to get what she wants. And um, I think you'll see that same thing with Marcus. That's my prediction. I mean, I, when you're looking at the comics, that's that's why I'm predicting that. But uh, um, I don't know. We did have a, a deleted scene where when we're talking, I put my hand over his. But I think because they had that with Saya, they cuffed it out because it just wasn't, wouldn't mean as much, you know? I have some weird conspiracies about them, but uh, we'll have to see. Next question up for Taylor was, how does she feel about Billy now? She's so damaged from her past. She's so guarded and, and defensive, and she's so afraid to be vulnerable because Billy's feelings are too real for her. You know, it's too much at stake, and I think as much as she wants to let go. You see that in the quiet moments when they're alone, right? You see that. It's There's something there, but she just won't let it go past that, you know? So um, I think it's just... It's just too real for her, and um, I'm hoping that when the time comes, she'll she'll let it happen for her because that's that's yeah she'll let go of it because that's the only family she's ever gonna have. My question for Taylor was, how much will things change after what happened with Lex? in the finale in season one. How much do you think things might change after what happened with Lex in the finale? Um, For Petra. I think 
that would be a huge damper on their connection and then that's why I think that's kind of why I was predicting you know she might look elsewhere where she she knows she's not going to be hurt it's just flings you know so I, I think this is something that she would carry with her uh, for the rest of her life. My final question for Taylor do you hope that you can explore more of what Petra can do with her poisons coming up in season two? We also get a nice taste of what she can do with her poisons in the yes. finale as well. Are you hoping to maybe explore that a little I bit more definitely, in season two? I definitely want to expand more on um, you know her fight fight training and um, I want to see I want to see more of her. She's, she's much more of a strategizer. She thinks and plans beforehand um, but when she has to act out of impulse she does she does so readily and um, it, I think it'll be nice to see I want to see more fight scenes from her because she is very strong and powerful and um, I also yeah I want to see her show off her poisons more yeah. I want to see more of her knowledge it's, it's dope <laughs> gotta love talking to this pair Maria Gabriela de Faria and of course Benjamin Wadsworth Maria and Marcus so of course the first thing that we had to do was ask them about that breakup you know I don't think it was meant to be <laughs> from the beginning. It was just two broken teenagers that found something similar and they, they thought they could do well together because of their, their past. Mm -hmm. but because they do the have similar lives. They don't belong in King Dominion. They don't have parents. They're broken childs. And, and of course, you know, they find each other, but, but, but. Mm -mm. <laughs> no, it didn't work out. Although I'm hopeful for the future. Yeah. I hope that maybe later in, I don't know, maybe season three or four, they figure it out. And, and no? <laughs> what are you saying? Yeah, that's Almost. cold, man. <laughs> that was so cold. Rejection. Like, I don't think Marcus or Maria know uh, what a proper relationship is. They could figure it out together. Yes, they could figure it out together. Season oh my three. My God. If not, I could totally figure it out with Saya. I think we have more future. <laughs> Sadly, I think we're, we're uh, staying close to the comics. So that's not going to happen. Sadly. Shoot. That wasn't the only breakup, though, at the end of season one. About What about what happened with Saya? Maria talks about that. I do believe that uh, for Maria, that breakup with Saya was the worst kind of breakup. Um, it really took a toll on her and broke her heart in a million pieces, even more than Marcus. After Saya left her and jumped out the window, literally, she couldn't care less about Marcus. She's like, you know what? I'm done with you. Gotcha. I think Marcus was a bit relieved, too. I mean, he, he wasn't ready to be in this kind of relationship. He didn't want to have to deal with anyone else's well, shit. Well, I saw him begging for forgiveness at the end of that scene. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean... For me, it was different. Who wants to get caught cheating? <laughs> <laughs> Next to sit down was executive producer and co-showrunner Miles Oran Feldsot. And the first question for him was, are you moving forward as if there's just going to be a season two? I mean, that's the way that Rick and I are looking at it. We're talking about kind of how much of season two, how much of the comic books uh, will season two occupy. Uh, we've talked about some episode ideas. So we're definitely thinking that way. And Fingers crossed, uh, sci-fi will let us kind of play again. Um, but uh, we all we need the fans to just make a lot of noise on social media and kind of harass sci-fi for us in the nicest way possible, um, and just kind of push them. 
let them know how much they love the show and how much it's connecting with them. My question for Miles was, the end of season one kind of ended a bit differently than it did in the comics. If you're a Diddley class fan, you know that. So, yeah, I asked him to talk about keeping the fans guessing a bit. The end of the finale, anyway, yeah. played out a little bit differently on the show than it did in the comics. Mm-hmm. Talk about that in a, l- a little bit and how it might keep us guessing fans of the comics going forward in the series as well. Yeah, I, it's certainly something that we're you know, cognizant of is that everyone can read ahead and kind of see the major plot points. And we are sticking to uh, a lot of the major beats of the book. We kind of look at the book as the Bible of the show. And we want to make sure that the fans of the book are watching the show and being like, that's that's what I signed up for. That's what I love. That's what I'm that's what I'm coming to the show for, and we're not disappointing them. At the same time, we also do want to kind of make sure that they're guessing. So there are differences between the show and the book. I'm not going to get into exactly what all those are because you know it is fun for the shows uh, fans of the comic to be like, oh, I didn't know that was coming, or I didn't know that those two characters were going to end up together, and that's a nice surprise. The main thing is that we make sure that we stay true to the tone of the book and the world of the book and that we honor that. And then if there's, you know, we'll find some places to be flexible in the plot. Next to sit down was Liam James. And, you know, if we're talking to Billy, I had to ask him, you know, will Billy and Petra ever actually happen? So Petra and Billy. Yep. Do you think that that's ever actually going to happen, or should we just let that dream die now? Oh, well, let's hope it's not autobiographical of my life. Uh, if you guys want to see that, if it's based on my high school life, you guys are going to be disappointed. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't know, man. I don't know. This show, I don't know if you guys have read the comics, but they like to play with your feelings. So we'll, we'll see what happens, though. I think I, I'm, I'm gunning for it. So if I, if I have anything to say about it, that girl's uh, as good as you know they're, they're, I think they're meant for each other so we'll see what happens yeah next thing that Liam was talking about I thought it was really interesting he was talking about how the show helped him discover comic books and listen to what he said the coolest part of that was it was cool to see things that weren't about superheroes they were just about like people I didn't know you could tell comic book stories that way and those are my favorite ones uh, have so far all of like Rick's stuff, they're never really about superheroes. They're about these really interesting people. And that's what I really love is the story. So Finally, the last question for Liam was, how is Billy going to react to what happened to Lex in the finale? Like, the death of, his, of Billy's father is definitely a big one, but I think it's different in the way that... He almost has more love for his his friend than he did more relationship than with his own dad because he he connects over the punk rock music. That's his roommate. Um, I don't think he's gonna not well. I don't think he's gonna take it very well. I don't know. What do you what do you think? It's not gonna. Not gonna work. I don't know. I don't know. There's just something so right about Deadly Class. I mean, it was maybe the truest adaptation of a comic book to screen. Ever. And that's a good thing, too, by the way. It wasn't shot for shot either, but you get so many of the iconic moments from the comic in there and the characters. It really is all about the character. And that's one of the things that I love the most about Deadly Class. So make sure you're tweeting hashtag renew Deadly Class, hashtag save Deadly Class, tag sci fi. Let them know you want Deadly Class back on sci fi this upcoming season. 
That's going to do it for episode 265 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to the folks at Sony and Sci-Fi for letting me sit down with the cast of Deadly Class at WonderCon this past year. If you want to find out more of our WonderCon interviews or Deadly Class interviews, there's a ton of them. Go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Also, make sure you're following along with us on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram. Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy as well. If you're looking for our chat about Game of Thrones, the finale, that's going to be happening on next week's show, episode 266. You're not going to want to miss that, and that's not the only thing we're going to be talking about. I can tell you that right now. But for now, remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.